This is the Activist Investing Today podcast, and I'm super excited to be speaking to Professor Paul Rose, who teaches associations, comparative corporate law, corporate finance, investment management law, and securities regulation at Ohio State University. And Paul just issued a new study looking at the so-called robo-voting practice, which is when investors mechanically follow recommendations issued by proxy advisors, predominantly institutional shelter services, but Glass Lewis a little bit as well. And he looked at data in 2020, so it's some pretty interesting stuff. So we're also going to talk about some other trends in activist hedge fund campaigns. So thanks, Paul, for taking the time. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. Really happy to be here with you. Okay, cool. So, Paul, first, talk to us a little bit about your study. I'll just kind of going to run through very briefly some of the headlines uh, that I found from it. Uh, you found that 114 institutional investors voted either with ISS or Glass-Lewis in 2020. 86% of these robo-voting investors used ISS and 14% used Glass-Lewis, which is uh, not surprising and uh, reflects the dominant market position of ISS. So tell us about the study, you know, how you conducted it, and maybe give us some color about some of the types of institutions that are robo-voting. I'm curious if they are the big ones or the small ones, are they mutual funds, are they active managers? Yeah, so for the study, I relied on data from Proxy Insight to determine how much alignment institutional investors had with proxy advisors. And like you mentioned, 114 institutional investors were basically voting in lockstep alignment with either ISS or Glass-Lewis. And I'll talk a little bit about what I mean by voting in lockstep in a minute. And collectively, they have about $5 trillion in assets under management. I'd done some earlier work on robo-voting, so I was able to compare what happened in 2019 with 2020. And then when we get all the data from this proxy season, I'll run another analysis. So interestingly, maybe because of the SEC's rulemaking last summer, their guidance on proxy voting, which all goes into effect at the end of this year, robo-voting in 2020 declined marginally from 2019 in terms of just the number of institutions went down by about a little under 6%, total assets under management, 3.5% down, total number of robo-voted resolutions, about 3% down from 2019. So maybe it was that, you know, in anticipation of the SEC's new rules, some investment advisors decided that they wouldn't continue robo-voting, but we still have a lot of them doing it, and we'll see how much that changes uh, when we get the data from this year. So just you know, one of the things that that I noticed when I went through the data is just how it raises some really interesting questions. So, you know, as you know, proxy advisors really do play this important role as information intermediaries. There's just so much information that comes out in this very compressed period of time every proxy season. So you'd think that it would be easy for smaller funds in particular to just want to be able to outsource their voting to proxy advisors. And large fund complexes, on the other hand, you'd think would be able to better absorb the costs of proxy voting. They could afford to have teams of folks reviewing materials. I and mean, maybe they just use proxy advisors to check their own thinking. But when I look at the data, there doesn't seem to be a strong correlation between fund size and robo-voting, at least for sort of the medium and smaller funds. So, you know, some really large funds are actually voting exactly in line with ISS and Glass Lewis. Some small funds are apparently doing their own research. They're voting more independently, but this is an area that I think we're just going to have to dig into a little more deeply because I think it seems pretty clear that a lot of funds just don't have the resources to do a lot of research. Now, you asked about, you know, if you think about active management, let's say, versus index funds, you would assume, I think, that active managers would 
probably vote less in line with ISS. They have built into their cost structure the ability to maybe do a little bit of research if they choose to. And index funds, you'd think that they might vote in line with proxy advisors. They don't want to spend any more time or money on proxy voting than they have to, I, you know, you might think. And so it's just not really part of their business model. You know, I'm not really sure what's going on there because as you might imagine, you have index funds and active funds in the same fund family. And at larger fund families, both are able to rely on an internal governance team. So in other words, some index funds might be just free riding off of what the active funds are, are doing, what their internal governance team tells them to do. Sorry, sorry Paul, the, the active uh, funds that are part of the, you know, connected to the index funds. So right, because you, because we, just, we get data, just the fund families, right? And so we can't, we haven't really been able to break that apart to see what's going on with mm-hmm. funds at the individual level. We just see what's going on at the family level typically. And, and so, but that is one area where I think we want to try to drill down a little bit more. So, so Paul, are you suggesting that like the, I guess, a small active manager may be more likely to robo-vote than a uh, large index fund? I'm thinking, of course, of the uh, uh, the, th- the big three index funds, BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard, you know, and their trillion plus dollars yeah. of uh, assets. You know, I, I know that they have these teams of people that the governance teams that are kind of reviewing situations and... Yeah, I suspect that they are less likely to robot, but maybe a smaller actor. Well, but you said that these small and, and big funds have part of the have made up these 114 institutional investors that robot. Yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah, so I mean, that's the thing. I would think that the passive smaller fund <laughs> would be the most likely to robo vote. It's just not in their cost structure, and they don't have economies of scale to make it really worthwhile. And then the least likely to robo vote would probably be a large active fund that you know has the the money to be able to to look individually at at different matters up for a proxy vote so that's how i think it would play out but it is hard to tell from the data what's going on at the individual fund level because often you'll just see disclosure that will talk about proxy voting for maybe a full family so yeah that is one of the things that we definitely want to look at though as we take a look at this uh in more detail and i guess there's one other related question that I want to address and I guess think through. And that's really, where do we see robo-voting happening more? Does it happen more at at big companies? Does it happen more at smaller companies? I mean, I, I think that that's a really important question. And that gives me, a, you know, that's a great idea for another paper, frankly, because I'm sure you can imagine a difference between voting patterns where you might see more robo-voting at small companies because you know, maybe there's just less at stake and there's less attention by the really big fund families. And frankly, there's probably less publicity. So investment advisors wouldn't really have to worry about being called out in the media for how they voted their proxies. But I'm just not sure how that plays out. So that's definitely something that that we want to take yeah, no, it's, a, it, look at. It's, it's it's interesting because uh, you know most institutions won't admit publicly that they robo-vote, although one admitted to me on background that you know, I, had a, I met him at an event that they don't have the resources to do their own research and that they basically outsource their voting decisions to institutional services. But, I, you know, I always wonder, you know, for example, in the case of proxy contests, which is my favorite thing to write about, and we write about a lot of them here at The Deal and the Activist Daily Briefing. And so I always suspect, and I've heard anecdotally that, you know, at a lot, very large situation, like, uh, you know, the, the huge Exxon proxy fight with the ESG activist engine number one, 
you know, super large cap company, the institutions will spend a lot of time researching and doing their own work. But at a very small proxy fight, let's say at a micro cap company or a small cap company, you know, even the biggest institutions with their teams of corporate governance, sustainability teams, they're not spending a lot of time at these smaller, dealing with these smaller companies. So that, that kind of, I think, fits with what you're suggesting, that there's just not a lot of publicity. Like, for example, today, reports have come out that BlackRock is uh, voting for three of the four dissidents directors at, uh, at Exxon. So clearly, in BlackRock, I'm sure we'll put out a bulletin report in the coming days explaining why they made this voting decision. But that's something that's under a, a microscope, is very focused. But these, you know, a contest at a microcap company, I suspect that, you know, the big and the, the smaller institutional investors are less likely to spend a lot of time working on and, and maybe more likely to robo-vote. I don't know. What do you think, Paul? Yeah, yeah. So for the big funds, like you mentioned, like BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard, they really do have, they have teams of folks. They're, they're typically really thoughtful, experienced folks. They take their work really seriously. They spend a lot of time engaging with company management and certainly the larger companies that's going to be more likely to, to take place. And there are really economies of scale that come into play for those big funds. Now, you know, as I mentioned, I'm not sure we see a, a meaningful correlation between fund size and robo-voting among small to medium-sized funds. But as you get to those large fund families, you certainly have governance teams that have the resources to consider proxy votes, particularly at those larger companies. So. Now, when you look at proxy fights, you know, I, I agree. I mean, I think that you, you know, you'll see less robo-voting with proxy fights. And some funds will actually disclose in their documents they'll they'll provide to their beneficial owners that they may follow proxy advisors for routine matters, but then they'll do their own research for things like proxy fights. And of course, I think size really does matter. So big proxy fights are gonna engender a lot more consideration from the funds than smaller fights would. And you can imagine that's really often a function just of enhanced media coverage, and that's going to put funds on notice that their votes might be scrutinized a little bit more. So that's why engine number one, I think, is really fascinating. Everyone wants to know how the big funds are going to vote. And you know, maybe even the funds that own less than 1%, but still have a, a good-sized chunk, they can still make news. And I I saw that Norway Sovereign Fund made news when it said the other day that it actually supported the management slate at Exxon, although they said, like they have for years, that they believe that you should separate out the CEO and chair votes, and they're going to vote against Darren Woods, the CEO, for that that yeah, reason. So Both those positions, the chair and the CEO position, yeah. Yeah, they like to split those. And so it's just a sort of a matter of good governance in their view. They want to they want to split those up, but they but they're coming out in favor of the management slate, which is kind of interesting because Norway Sovereign Fund really takes ESG very seriously. You know, they have a really big sustainability team that thinks a lot about those issues. So it is pretty fascinating to watch how this plays out. But I think that for the funds, in that kind of a case, you're absolutely right. I think they're just they know that they're going to be scrutinized, but of course, there's just more at stake, right? I mean, there's just more money at stake. And mm-hmm. and uh, so I do think that they, they take it really quite seriously. So just one thing, uh, just to go back on your uh, robo-voting study a bit, uh, 
you wanted to talk about this this term lockstep. I think right? that yeah, are they yeah. are they voting one hundred percent with ISS or is it ninety nine point five? Yeah. So thanks. Yeah, I, I, like I really you're making before that about where the uh, they have they they say that they'll vote with the proxy advisors, but in some some cases they'll do their own research, but only a tiny percentage of the cases, something like that. Yeah. So I guess I just thanks for letting me clarify that because I think you know when you ask about robo voting and you say well you know these investment advisors are robo voting what does that mean and there there've actually been a few different studies that have uh that have come out in the last few years and you'll see various thresholds for what robo voting might be so the American Council for Capital Formation did this this study where they they used a 95% threshold to determine robo voting and so in other words if you voted 95% of the time in line with ISS or Glass-Lewis, you're a robo-voter. But I'm sure some folks thought, well, I mean, I can imagine that a lot of funds might vote in line with ISS 95% of the time, but most of those votes are just routine matters where, you know, pretty much everybody's voting a certain way. So in, in my study, I really wanted to have a high percentage of alignment before we would call someone a robo-voter. So I really looked at an alignment of 99.5% and above Mm-hmm. And voting at more than a hundred shareholder meetings, those are are really the group that I that I consider robo voters. So the point is, is that this really kind of captures even some controversial items where there should be maybe a discrepancy. <laughs> but the, right, the exactly, and that that's really what exactly. You yeah. know, and again, I'm, I'm sure I'm not going to please everybody. You have to draw the line somewhere. But I I did want to make it so that you know you're going to be capturing, as you said, lots of things that would be things where you think that an investment advisor might want to look quite closely at rather than just, you know, most of the routine things where I imagine there's not a lot of difference among shareholders. Okay. I wanted to just ask you one more question about the, about proxy fights. So it's proxy solicitors that I speak to whenever I write an article about a, a director contest have often suggested to me that, oh, you know, with the robo voting and the ISS recommendation, let's say in favor of the dissident slate, you can see something like 15, 20% of shares will automatically vote for the dissonance slate that they just kind of know that. And I, I feel like that's more of an art than a science to, to the point that you're making before that, you know, I guess it depends on what percentage of the institutional investors own shares in the company. You know, if it's like Exxon, where there's a huge retail base, it's kind of harder to tell. But you know, does that sound right? Like fifteen to twenty percent? I guess that it off, off probably varies uh, on the small cap again, right? Where they yeah, for sure for the this for based on ISS, you know, do the robo voting thing. So I don't know. Does fifteen twenty percent sound right? Yeah, I mean, I you know, it's I think because of the variety in the the size of the company, their retail base, you know, just what kinds of institutions you have investing in them, you you. You're going to see quite a bit of variation. So I would say, you know, maybe even 10 to 25% mm-hmm. as a kind of range that that you could imagine where you would say, yeah, that, there's probably a lot of just robo voting at, at that level where you can really count on those votes and know that if the proxy advisor comes in for the dissident slate, you can count on 20 to 25%. But as you said, I think it's absolutely right that it's going to vary quite a bit depending on you know, what kind of investors you have. And of course, the size of the company is going to be related to the kinds of investors you have too. Whereas you have, you know, Exxon's kind of an unusual company in that you tend to see a correlation between size and institutional investor base, where the bigger it is, you know, the more institutional investors you'll you'll tend to have as a percentage. But 
but you do have some pretty big companies with big retail bases too. And and so, yeah, I mean, I think that, that will definitely play into the kind of robo-voting you see and and how many votes you can count on if you're a proxy solicitor trying to, to guess as, where, as to where it might end up. Yeah, I'm just looking at my facts at 46% is unknown, which is, and 53% institutions, but the 46% that's unknown that basically is retail, it's vast majority of that is retail. Yeah, for, and for a company that size, that's pretty unusual, right? That's not, you usually don't find companies that size with that big of a retail base. Yeah, no, very interesting stuff. So, okay. So you, you touched at the beginning of our conversation about the SEC during the Jay Clayton, when Jay Clayton was chairman of the, the Trump administration and implemented some new rules for proxy advisors, kind of two different, there's rules and then there's the guidance. And for the purpose of the robo-voting conversation, I feel like the rules are fascinating too, and how those are going to get implemented and give companies a chance to attach uh, responses to proxy advisor reports that then go out, get blasted out to institutional investors simultaneously or shortly afterwards. But the guidance, I think, is the most interesting for our conversation. So basically, my understanding was that the guidance made it less likely that an institutional investor feels like they have a fiduciary duty to vote, that they may not need to vote. And of course, you know, now we have this new administration, we have Gary Gensler in, the Biden administration's pointing ahead as chairman. Policy experts I talk to everywhere seem to think that the uh, this administration will be less tough on the proxy advisors, more friendly. Maybe they'll issue new guidance telling us that investors have a fiduciary duty to vote and go back to that kind of thing. But yeah. assuming the guidance has not changed and you know the status quo, do you think that there'll be less voting, more abstention in the coming months? Which is, I guess, a factor. Future people that are chronically yeah. voting will have to consider what percentage of people are just not voting. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting. If you go back to when the SEC originally created this this rule where they said, look, investment advisors have this fiduciary responsibility to vote proxies in the best interests of their ultimate beneficial owners. They actually said in that rulemaking that, you know, there could be circumstances where it might be in the interests of the beneficial owners not to vote the proxies. But then if you look at the footnote to that statement, it says, say you receive proxy materials from a foreign company that's in your portfolio. You know, getting that translated might be very costly and perhaps not worth it. But, you know, I look at that exception, I think, gosh, that's really not much of an exemption or an exception. If I'm an investment advisor, I really feel like I probably should vote every proxy. I just don't want to take the risk that the SEC comes after me for violating my fiduciary duties. And I also don't want investors going to the SEC and saying, hey, look, they're not voting proxies the way that we want them to. So I guess I'm not sure whether they will do that, meaning that whether you'd actually have investment advisors decide not to, in reliance on the guidance, decide not to vote proxies. I think that they probably will continue to do that just because they worry about the risk of having the SEC look a little more closely at them. But that's the thing. If we look at what happened with the Department of Labor rule and the Department of Labor is saying that they're really not going to enforce the Trump administration's proxy voting rules. Could it be that the SEC sort of signals that maybe they're just not going to police that as closely? I think so, but we'll see how that plays out. I mean, I think that the rules were actually really measured. Ultimately, the SEC staff thought pretty carefully about this for a really long time. They tried to take this kind of negotiated approach where they recognized that proxy advisors really do have this important role to play in the way that we've set this system up. And so they don't want to make it so that they they really can't play that role, but they also want to make sure that investment advisors are providing information to the ultimate beneficial owner so that they can understand how 
the advisors are using the proxy advisors, the investment advisors are using them. So, you know, I do think that the Gensler SEC definitely believes that investment advisors should vote proxies, that you have to keep management in line. And I think that, you know, we definitely see that view continuing. In my crystal ball anyway, I think we see that that idea continuing. So I I do think that they will expect investment advisors to continue voting and relying on proxy advisors to do that work. Okay. So your gut is suspecting we won't see this massive increase in abstentions. In the, I when don't think look so. Back at the yeah. Proxy season. <laughs> yeah, that's my suspicion too. And I feel like the SEC during the Clayton administration made previous adjustments to guidance that, you know, all these kind of SEC lawyer types suggested to me, oh, this is it. This is the big guidance that will unleash right. a wave of institutional investors that will no longer feel obliged to vote. And then they still are all voting. Uh, so this last guidance, I don't know. I, I, I suspect maybe you're right that the, uh, the way the SEC in, enforces it might be a major factor. In, how institutions, I, I agree with you. I think institutions investors will continue to vote in large numbers and won't see big abstention. And then, yeah, that'll play into the robo-voting thing. You have this thesis that activist hedge funds benefited a lot from the proxy advisor recommendation. Yeah, this is kind of interesting, which is, uh, I've always kind of suspected this. I, you know, the, I feel like in a kind of a subplot on this, you have the gadfly. They don't like to be called gadflies. The gadfly investor, right. the John Shavedans, who for years have been promoting these governance changes, you know, should have a special shoulder meeting, lower the threshold for calling a special shoulder meeting, yep. voted by majority vote, declassify boards, and store majority voting, not plurality voting regimes, kill supermajority voting for directors and have a just majority. All these things kind of add up and I and I feel like they help, help hedge funds. Is that is that what you're suggesting? Like the hedge fund activists, I mean, you know. The- yeah. So, I mean, you know, markets, as you know, I mean, they've become increasingly institutionalized over the years. And of course, we see the rise of proxy advisors and we really do see the shareholder voice becoming more powerful. Powerful. And of course, you know, the SEC's rules reflect that kind of inclination as well, that shareholders really should have a voice and should be using their voice to keep management in check. And so, you know, you've seen shareholders eliminating governance mechanisms that protected incumbents like poison pills, classified boards. I mean, just look at the data and, and you can see how that's really changed over the last 20 years. And I think that's certainly benefited activist investors who really can pose a more credible threat to managers. They're able to gain influence much more easily than I think they would otherwise. And and I'm frankly, I'm not sure if we would have the activist movement that we have today without proxy advisors, or at least maybe it would have taken us longer to get where we are. So I do think that they have had an important role in maybe almost unwittingly helping hedge fund activists be able to exercise power in the way that they currently can. I feel like, though, there is one countervailing force. The uh, Another thing I love to write about, the rise of the dual-class share structure company. You know, Mark yeah. Zuckerberg controls 60% of the vote at Facebook, and there's you know all these other technology companies, IPO, and a lot of them have this sunset provision that requires them to go to one share, one vote after a period of years, like seven years, eight years or something. But yeah. I feel like that's kind of the, the way the advisory community is retaliating against this. But I feel like if all companies are dual-class, you know, this is an existential threat to activists, that the dual class share structures, you know, it doesn't matter if the company is classified board or not, if the if Mark Zuckerberg controls 60%. That's right. Yeah. And that's really been a fascinating trend, right? And big tech company goes public. You kind of assume that it'll have a dual class share structure and it'll essentially be takeover proof and, and really insulated against those kinds of challenges. And I do think that that's a fair point that that really has acted as at least for those companies, a a way to sort of counteract that potential threat. 
Yeah. So, but you had suggested that hedge funds are not aligned with other investors, which is an interesting comment. And I and I could see, you know, I could see that there's always the speculation that hedge funds are very short termist. You know that they want to see a company sold. I feel like that was the original thing that drove these dual class structures. Otherwise, Facebook maybe would have been sold to Google under pressure from Elliot. I'm just spe- uh, hypoth- yeah. hypothesizing here under Elliot Majran, you know, one of the activist hedge funds years ago, when, you know, after it went public. Do you agree with that? that the hedge yeah, I mean, I, they, I think that's really... They talk about uh, governance as positive and they get a lot of institutional investors to support them, but then they do things that the institutions <laughs> may not like. Yeah, yeah. yeah, at least some, right? So I mean, that's, that's really one of the most fascinating things about the dynamic between activist funds and proxy advisors, right? Many of the sort of bread and butter clients of proxy advisors like pension funds, for example, could have really different priorities than activist funds. So maybe instead of making a firm leaner and selling off less productive assets, maybe the pension fund would like to see more investment in employees. They think that that's really the key to generating long-term wealth. And so I feel that, and I think the data bears this out, that shareholders really have heterogeneous preferences. There are all kinds of different shareholders with different views. I think that in this case, you have this interesting agreement where, you know, the <laughs> a union pension fund and an activist hedge fund may not agree on a lot, but they certainly can agree that managerial accountability is a good thing, right? So I think in that way, proxy advisors that have catered to some of those investors have really facilitated proxy battles. And maybe that doesn't always work out the way that pension funds might want them to. Now, you know, I've written a little bit about activist hedge funds. And in one paper, my co-author and I argue that hedge funds may sometimes see opportunities that incumbent managers don't see, or maybe the incumbents choose to ignore them. And so activist funds can really serve to release value. But I also think that, as Marty Lipton would say, the great anti-takeover lawyer would say that, you know, hedge funds are operating on shorter term time horizons than other investors. And so maybe that's really not good for the long-term health of the economy. And hedge funds are really laser focused on maximizing shareholder value, even if that might come at the expense of other stakeholders. Now, you know, not all shareholders hold the same views on these issues. So that's really one of the big debates that we're seeing in legislatures and academia and boardrooms and the media. It's really pretty fascinating to see how those conversations and how that debate plays out. Yeah, I could totally see a scenario where a uh, activist hedge fund is uh, advocating for governance changes and they have a very valid point. You know, everybody on the board has been there for 25 years. They're uh, 75 years old or older, and that the that's you know the separation, like you said, with Norges, the sovereign wealth funds, there should be a separation of chairman and CEO, and you know the the CEO's compensation is not tied to performance, and so all these pension funds and issues investors support the activists, they get their distant directors on the slate, but you know the activists' real goal may be to break the company up into two publicly traded companies to unlock value that's hidden in a conglomerate structure. And that may not be what the the pension funds that supported the dissident director candidates would have hoped for. You know, maybe they thought that it would make sense that these units are kept together. They're counter-cyclical, supporting each other. And, you know, those pension funds and the index funds are there for the long haul, whereas the activists, you know, maybe not as short term as some of the corporate advisors would say, you know, they're out of there in like two, three years or something like that. Right, right, I can see these kind of scenarios where the institutions support the activists and then get burned later on kind of thing. But uh, it's hard to look back in hindsight at, you know, what would have been had this company not been broken up or sold to another company? Absolutely. The harder ones. Yep. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. 
Okay, well, this has been fascinating. I appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. You've been listening to the Activist Investing Today podcast. We've been speaking to Paul Rose at Ohio State University. Thanks, Paul, for taking a little time. Yeah, thanks so much for having me.